Bible this morning, turn with me uh, to the book of Hebrews. Let's go to chapter 7. We want to pick up our study in verse 20 through verse 28. We want to look at the need for a new priesthood. Now, as if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we've been going right through Hebrews chapter 7. And when you come to Hebrews chapter 7, there is a man that we meet. His name is Melchizedek. And we went back to Genesis chapter 14. That's where we first meet him. And then we come into Hebrews chapter 5 and Hebrews chapter uh, 6. And uh, again, it's mentioned. But when you come to Hebrews chapter 7, it just seems like it deals with this whole position of Melchizedek. And we believe, and I, I've been teaching now, that uh, this Melchizedek is actually an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. It's called a theophany. Now, oftentimes we all see that in the Old Testament where Jesus comes into the picture, takes on a form of a man, and ministers. Now, there are those that don't believe that this Melchizedek is Christ but that this is a strong typology or a strong picture, a shadow of the things to come. E either way, we can you know, teach both ways. I believe it was Christ in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus told the religious leaders in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. And they couldn't grasp that. In fact, I believe they wanted to kill him. They wanted to throw stones at him. Because they said, you're not even 50 years old, and you know Father Abraham? And you say you were already there? Well, I believe that Jesus met Abraham as Melchizedek back in Hebrews uh, chapter 7 as we're studying it. But uh, let's take it back further to Genesis chapter 14. And so we're going to look at the need for a new priesthood. Now, leave a marker right there, and I want you to back up a little bit. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. Verses 19 and 20. As this kind of just launches us in, I wanted to share that in the first two studies, but I wanted to bring it to the conclusion because we're looking at Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 7. And so it's spoken about at the conclusion of Hebrews chapter 6. Look at verse 19 with me. This hope, we have an anchor of the soul. He says, both sure and steadfast and which uh, enters the presence uh, behind the veil. Now, this hope, we know, is Jesus Christ. Look at verse 20, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus Christ, having become high priest forever. And here's that position, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, back up into verse 19, we know that this hope is Jesus Christ. For the believer, that is our hope. It's no longer the priesthood. The priesthood brought us to that place. That priesthood brought us to that place of knowing that we need a completed high priest. We need uh, this high priest to be Christ. We need a complete sacrifice. And so we've been developing this, and so we see a picture of Melchizedek. Now, I like what it says here. This hope we have as an anchor. If you've ever done any fishing, you know, you come up, and then the the boat stops, you've got your favorite fishing hole, first thing you do is set out the anchor. No matter what size ship or boat it might be, but you have to have that anchor. Well, our anchor is in Christ. 
we've come to that place and we anchor in him. He has our heart. We have his heart. We've come to that place of the born-again experience. Why? Because Jesus is my high priest once and for all. He becomes that new covenant. Look at verse 20 now. At the cross, Jesus Christ, when he died, he entered this holy of holies. And he took the rightful position as our final high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you recall, when we do studies around the time of Easter, we do this Passover week. And it's all about Christ, and he's going to the cross eventually. We know that when Jesus dies on the cross, when he gives up the ghost, the Bible says that there was an earthquake. The Bible says there was this great darkness. And then all of a sudden we hear and we read about the temple curtain that it's rent into. In other words, Jesus cuts this temple curtain right into allowing now the access into the Holy of Holies. You have to understand, if you see the temple, there's two compartments, and the priest would have the holy place and then the Holy of Holies. He would only go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, which we understand is Yom Kippur. And then the priest would make a sacrifice for the nation of Israel. When Jesus dies on the cross... And he gives up that ghost. The Bible says that the temple curtain tore in half. Allowing now, because of his final position as our high priest, to come into the Holy of Holies. We no longer need a priesthood. We no longer need a priest because Jesus becomes our complete sacrifice. He becomes our high priest. And we're going to study as we continue here in Hebrews chapter 7 that he's after the order of Melchizedek, as we see here in verse 20. But Jesus is a high priest now forever. He sits at the right hand of the Father, we're going to see this morning in our text, and he makes intercession for us. That Jesus prays for me, that Jesus prays for you. Now we first must come into that position of the born-again experience. We need to come to saving grace. Now, if you understand this morning that Jesus is our final high priest, I need to ask this question. Have you received him as your personal Lord and Savior? Or do we just continue to go to church? Do I call myself a Christian, but have I received Christ? Have I received this sacrifice? It's a free gift, the Bible teaches us. But you'd be amazed how many people go to church. They've never received Christ. They don't have this personal relationship. You come into to church every Sunday does not make you a Christian. But receiving the risen Christ, receiving this complete sacrifice, receiving this now, my complete high priest. And once I receive him as my Lord and Savior, that he sits at the right hand of the throne of grace. He sits right next. He's rightfully sitting next to his heavenly father. And he makes intercession for Praise for me, praise for you. We're going to see that now. Now, let's go to our text. Go to Hebrews chapter 7 and look at verse 20 through 28. We want to look this morning, the need for a new priesthood. And so he begins here. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath. Without an oath. Now, the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, basically... They became priests 
through their genealogy. Your dad was a priest. Your grandfather was a priest. Your great-grandfather was a priest. You're the tribe of Levite. You're going to be a priest. But Jesus, the oath was taken by the Father. In other words, man did not give the oath to Jesus. You know, raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear? No, he did not do that. God the Father took the oath that Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, would be the final high priest. Understand this, church, forever. You see, Jesus dies uh, on the cross. As we already shared, the curtain rents into allowing access to the Holy of Holies once and for all. This was never done for another priest. Each one of those priests took that oath by coming in through their lineage, through their genealogy. But Jesus is a priest forever through the order of Melchizedek. Now, one of the things that we develop, as we've been teaching in Hebrews chapter 7, the priest was only allowed to minister to the Jews. But Jesus, as a king and a priest, coming from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi, Jesus ministered, listen, to Jew and Gentile. And we have to rejoice for that because we fall into that category. And we're going to see that Jesus is a high priest forever. Now we continue, look at verse 21. For they have become priests without an oath, just through their heritage. Speaking of the Levitical priesthood. But he... Speaking of Christ, with an oath, by him who said to him, and here's what we've been reading throughout uh, the, the book of Hebrews chapter 7, the Lord has sworn, he took an oath, and will not relent. Some of your translation might say, repent, but it's a bad translation. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The ones who before became priests, took their office, as their lineage, they were part of the priesthood. And it was just automatic that it was going to be. And that's why we have in the Old Testament good priests and bad priests. But here, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, the Son of God, was addressed with an oath. But he never took the Levitical priesthood. He became a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn... Him as our high priest. And God cannot change his mind. The word that he uses here for repentance is, is a bad translation. The better translation is that God will not relent. He will not relent because Jesus is a priest forever. He will not change his mind. God will not relent because he is a priest forever. God changes not his mind. In Psalm 110, verse 4, listen to the text again the lord has sworn he took an oath and will not revoke or change it you are a priest forever he's speaking about his son after the manner after the order of melchizedek and again we ask that question who is this melchizedek is he christ in the old testament is it a christophany is it an appearance of christ in the old testament is it a typology either way it fits because it's pointing uh, to the complete priesthood. It's pointing uh, to the cross. Now, uh, the Levite priests were set apart. Yes, they were consecrated. 
but they were ascendants. They came from their, uh, the, the Levitical tribe. They followed the footsteps. They were descendants. Now, Chuck Missler says that uh, you came into the priesthood about the age of 25. But as I've studied the scriptures, you could not, as a Hebrew, they would not receive you in any office until you were 30 years old. If you recall, Jesus came, comes into his public ministry at the age of 30. The Jews would not receive a teaching until at least the man was 30 years old. So if he comes into the priesthood at 25, he had five years to prepare. But this was the Levitical priest. They, then they would come into their office. Remember when Samuel, the prophet of God, he was also a priest. He was brought into the temple as a youngster, and they weaned him. And then when the time come, uh, Samuel took his office. But Samuel was appointed of God. This priest, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, became a priest in virtue of an oath, the Lord swore, as we read, the reference of Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn or taken this oath. This is God Almighty. I will not uh, repent or relent. I will not regret or I will not alter uh, the mind through regret. He's not going to change. This is the meaning of the Greek. No regrets in God's part. My son, Jesus Christ, is a high priest forever. Now, we're going to see this forever Jesus sits at the right hand of the father right now as our high priest now verse 22 is precious he says by so much more Jesus has become we, we saw him as an anchor he's become a surety of a better covenant God's oath made the new covenant through Jesus Christ much more a surety and it is a better covenant Jesus Christ is the stronger testament. That's the word better than the Levitical priesthood. The law only covered your sins. Jesus Christ, the new covenant, forgives our sins. The Old Testament covenant depended upon what I did, what you did. The New Testament covenant depends upon what Christ has done and the work that he done at the cross. Now can you understand when Jesus dies and he gives up the, the ghost and he says, it is finished, it's complete, it's done. The Old Testament covenant is based upon the works of the New Testament. Covenant is based upon Jesus' work, Jesus' love. Jesus is death on the cross, not of works anymore, church. He's the better sacrifice. He's the complete sacrifice. This word surety, Jesus has become my guarantee, your guarantee. I have access uh, to the throne of grace because of Christ. I'm assured of that. I'm guaranteed that. The promises of God are guaranteed. When, when we read the skip scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, it's a guarantee. There's not very many guarantees out there. You know, you go and buy an appliance and they guarantee it for just a time. It just seems like through two or three years go by, and then the, the warranty's gone, and then it breaks down. But Jesus guaranteed forever. The Bible says that he is the better uh, covenant here. Now, we've been studying the book of Hebrews, and we see this word better 12 times uh, in the book of Hebrews. 
We read that Jesus is better than the angels. We read that Jesus is the better hope. We read that Jesus is the better testament. Speaking of the New Testament, that Jesus is the better covenant. In other words, that he becomes the complete sacrifice. Jesus is the better promise. And so you can't miss when it comes to Christ. The better sacrifice, the complete sacrifice, the only sacrifice. Now, the question will always come, well, then what about the Old Testament saints, Pastor Bob? How did they come uh, to saving grace? The Bible teaches us that they came by faith. Now, we come by faith also, but our faith is in Christ. Now, the Old Testament came by faith in God. It doesn't change. Now, I want you to write this down. Once we get to Hebrews chapter 11, it is called the faith chapter. It is called the hall of faith. It is called the heroes of faith. I'm going to give you some verses. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, it tells us that by faith, Abraham comes to saving grace. It was by faith that Abraham came. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, Enoch believed God by faith, just as Abraham believed God by faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, Noah comes to God, listen, by faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, Abel comes to God by faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, listen to this, Sarah comes to God by faith. Now, I think I turned Abel and Abraham around, so you can take care of that in dyslexia. In verse 11, Sarah came by faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20, then Isaac comes by faith. You see, again, in Hebrews chapter 11, they all came to God by faith. You're here this morning by faith. If you've received Christ, it's because of your faith. And the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, you're all familiar with this passage. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 9 and 8, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest a man should boast. You see, in the Old Testament, we might have boasted. Well, listen, I, I, I took a bull, I took a goat, I took a lamb, I took a sheep, whatever it might be. I took two turtle doves. Last week, I took four turtle doves. And we can boast about what I've done. But the Bible teaches that Jesus becomes my complete sacrifice. Now, I want you to go ahead just a little bit. Go to Hebrews chapter 9 now. And go to verse 13 and 14. You see, the Old Testament blood only covered uh, the sin was called the word in the Hebrew was kofar. It just covered your sin. You would have to come back next week, and you would have to come back the following week. But the New Testament teaches us that we're washed in the blood of the Lamb once and for all. I come to saving grace. I've accepted the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He becomes my Savior. He becomes my Messiah. And now I, I still sin because I'm, I'm human. You sin because you're human. But I come now and I'm washed in the precious blood of the Lamb. I've already accepted Christ. 
But there's a cleansing, there's a washing, there's an emptying. But look what it says about the Old Testament. Now, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. There had to be the blood sacrifice. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve fell from grace, and then they were naked. Remember, they were hiding. God says, who told you you were naked? And the Bible says that God, listen, he places skins on them. So the first animal sacrifice was made by God himself. And they put skins on them. In Hebrews 9, look at verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. Now, this is the picture of the temple sacrifices for your sins. Josephus, the great Jewish historian, tells us that it was a bloody mess when the priest was, you know, offering the sacrifices and the blood was spilled everywhere. Then they had to wash down the altar and then kill some more animal sacrifice, especially when it came time uh, for, let's say, Passover. There were seven feast days that you had to attend, at least four of them. But on Passover, Josephus writes, says over 240,000 lambs were slain for the sacrifice. What a bloody mess. Now Jesus accomplishes this once and for all. Look at verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, speaking of uh, no sin, to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, church, it's not the animal sacrifice, the bulls, the goats, uh, and such. It's not the animal sacrifices, but it's Jesus, the complete sacrifice. His love uh, that he went on the cross for us to give us life, life eternal. And so look at the picture. Jesus, after the order of Melchizedek, he becomes our final and our complete high priest. I don't need a priesthood anymore. I don't need another priest. Now, I come here as I'm the pastor of the church. My place is to teach the word of God. I can't save you. This church can't save you. But it's Christ who paid the full price for you. It's Christ who died for you. It's Christ, listen, who shed his blood for you to give you life, life eternal. Now, we've read this many times. Uh, some of you even quote it, but I want you to see it. Go with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, and look at verse 16 and 17. From time to time when you're watching a sport event, there's always somebody with that placard. John 3, 16. You remember that multicolored haired guy? He actually looked like a rainbow. He seemed to be at every sport event. I mean, he was always there with John 3.16. In fact, I'd be watching a game, and I'd say, where is he? And then we'd spot him. He was always there. Well, I, I didn't see him anymore, and I looked up. Find out he's in prison. And I go, what happened? <laughs> well, you can't just put a placard. you got to live it. I don't know what he got in trouble for, but he got it in trouble. But notice in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Now, this is the universal call. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then usually we don't read verse 17, but let's go for it. For God did not send his son into the world 
to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You ever heard somebody say, well, what kind of a loving God do you have that you serve? He's going to cast everybody into hell. You see, hell was never created for man. Hell was created for the fallen angels. But because of our sin nature and because of unrepented sin, we place ourselves in hell. Nobody in hell today can say, God put me here. No, your sins put you there. And you will know it. Because according to Luke chapter 16, all the senses are working in hell. Think about that. But the universal call, if this high priest of ours, if this Christ after the order of Melchizedek, if he's our final high priest, if he's the complete blood sacrifice, we need to accept that. And the scriptures teach it. Now, if you're here this morning, you call yourself a Christian, but I need to ask you, have you accepted Christ? Have you accepted his atonement at the cross? Have you asked Jesus, forgive me, come into my life, set me free? I believe this scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But have you asked him? Now, there's two verses that I love to bring forth. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus is talking to a ruler of the Jews. His name is Nicodemus. He's in the Sanhedrin, one of the 70 elect. Uh, he had his credentials on the wall, but he comes to Jesus at night. What must a man do to enter eternal life, to enter the kingdom of God? And basically, Jesus says, Nick, you must be born again. Listen, Nicodemus, you were born by the water, that's the natural birth. You were born in your mother's womb, and you came forth. But now, you need to be born from above. You need to be born again, listen, of the Holy Spirit. Now, when I read John chapter 3 in its entirety, you know, I, I responded like a lot of us responded. Because Nicodemus said, how can I go back into my mother's womb? Because I'm already older. You're missing the point, Nicodemus. You must be born again from above. Now, if Jesus is my complete and high priest, which I see, he's after the order of Melchizedek, and then I must be born again. I have to go through the cross. I love this verse. You know it in Romans 10, 13. Paul said, those that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does it take, church? Some of you know my testimony. In 1976, I started seeking for God. I was looking. I was searching. I was empty. But for three years, I fought my Catholicism. I was born, raised in the church. I went through the Catholic school system. And so I thought I arrived. I made all the sacraments that needed to be made. But I never come to saving grace. I looked at the scriptures. My friend would ask me, are you born again? I didn't know what he was talking about. And when he told me, all you have to do is ask. Those that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a promise. If it is so simple, why doesn't everybody do it? The problem is a lot of people say, uh, you know, Lord, forgive me, come into my life. But there's no change. There's no transformation. There has to be change. 
God changes you from the inside out. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, any woman be in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Change, transformation. It wasn't until June the 3rd, 1979, that I made that true commitment to Christ. True commitment to Christ. And how did I do it? By faith. How did you do it? By faith. And then the next steps just ensued. Lord, I received your atonement at the cross. Lord, if I need that blood sacrifice, I receive it by faith. Now, you have to be careful. The enemy is going to come and rock your cage. Oh, you just said that prayer didn't mean nothing. Oh, the enemy fools a lot of people. But this is where your faith comes in. Lord, I'm going to hold on to your faith. Lord, I'm going to hold on to that niche of faith. Lord, I'm going to keep reading the scriptures. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's go to verse 23 now, back to our text. Also, there were many priests. Now, he's speaking about the Levitical priesthood. Also, there were many priests because they were uh, prevented by death from continuing. Many priests under the Old Testament uh, covenant, the Levitical priesthood. Then think about it. One priest died, then another priest took his place. I've always asked this question. Were they called of God? Were they appointed by man or were they called by God? We're going to see that in verse 24. If you know your Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, we read about Eli the priest. He was, an, he was a priest because of the Levitical priesthood. And so it just goes down the line. And then it tells us that his two sons followed suit. Remember their names, Hopne and Phineas. But go back and study them. They were evil. They were stealing. They were taking. They were bad priests. And see, that's the problem. That's why a need for a new priesthood, one that is after the order of Melchizedek, which is Christ. Now, there were good priests out there, but there would come those ones that were evil, such as Hopni and Phineas. In fact, Eli the priest, when he was told of the errors that his sons were doing, he couldn't believe it. The Bible says he was sitting on a log and he fell over and he broke his neck because he could not believe, not my sons. I'm afraid there's a lot of ministries today and you have to wonder, are those that are teaching, are they called of God? You have no business in the pulpit unless God calls you. The same with the priesthood. Now, one commentary said this about verse 23. Listen, under the Jewish dispensation, the object of this verse and the following verse, verse 24, the frailty of human nature, uh, it says the state of one more reason of the excellency of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. It is, and this is, I went ahead, the owing to the frailty of human nature and the shortness of life in the office of a priest, there was continually changing. But here, there was no such change. In other words, Jesus Christ being exalted to the heavens to live forever and ever, and now an unchangeable priesthood and everything in regard to his office is permanent 
forever. It's complete forever. At the cross, Jesus completed the new covenant. It is finished. We're going to see that in verse 24 now. In verse 24, it says, but he, because he continues forever. Now, again, the description of what is forever? Eternal. I mean, it just continues. You can't describe it any other way. But he, because he continues forever, and listen to this, has an unchangeable priesthood. In other words, Jesus remains forever. The Greek is telling us Jesus remains forever. He remains forever as our high priest, our final priest. He remains forever. He's unchangeable. It did not pass over into other hands as the Levitical priesthood passed from one to another as successive generations came on the stage. But here's a good question. I want you to think about this as I was putting the study together. Is Jesus our high priest in heaven today? The answer is yes. I believe he is. Will Jesus remain a high priest during the time of the millennial reign, the 1,000-year reign here on earth? I believe so. And then one of my commentaries brought it up. Well, what happens after the millennial reign? Does Christ leave his priesthood? Some suggest maybe. How can he leave? When he's a priest forever, he sits at the right hand of the Father. We're going to see that right now in verse 25. How can he be a priest forever, and then after the millennium, he leaves it? Is Jesus our Messiah forever? Yes. Is he my Savior forever? Yes. So after the millennium, he's not going to be? See, the logic is not there. And this is why sometimes you have to be careful when you read some of the commentaries. Now, notice verse 25. Therefore, and when you see the word therefore, you see the word wherefore or therefore, it's of everything we've studied now. He's bringing it all together now. Of all that we've studied, Jesus, after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus, our high priest, Jesus, our final sacrifice. So he says, therefore, he is also able to save, underline that, to the uttermost parts or to the uttermost those who come to God through him. And here's that faith factor. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus saves to the uttermost. Listen, he saves Jew and Gentile. Yes, the Bible teaches that salvation to the Jew first. But we saw in Acts chapter 10 where Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit actually sends Peter to Cornelius' house. Remember that? Peter went to a Gentile house. And not only did Peter go to a Gentile house, but he also broke bread with them, even when he did not want to. And then he saw the Holy Spirit fall upon the Gentiles. So Jesus saves to the uttermost, to those who come to God through him, Jew or Gentile. Jesus saves to the uttermost. Look, at this started at Calvary 2,000 years ago. The salvation message, Jesus, our high priest, has come to Las Cruces, New Mexico. I mean, how much uttermost do you want to be? Salvation of God, so beautiful. And look at our United States of America. 
Who is without excuse? Who has not heard the gospel message? And yet there are those that probably will not hear it. But the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. He makes intercession for him. Okay, let's go back to verse 25. This is our Savior, our High Priest, our Messiah, our God forever. The Greek to the uttermost speaks about completeness, finality, perfectness. The Greek also takes it to the one who saves forever is the same one who completes forever. This is Jesus Christ, our high priest. As our complete high priest sits at the right hand of God and he makes intercession for his saints. The word to intercede is that Jesus pleads to the Father for us, that Jesus prays to the Father for us. What a blessing to know. This morning, if you're a Christian, you're born again of the Holy Spirit. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, and he prays for me. He prays for you. Now, the enemy is the accuser of the brethren, the book of Revelation tells us. And so the enemy's always going to be there. But there's those times, and, and I want you to identify with that this morning. There's those times I'm in that trial. There's those times I'm in that hardship. There's those times I'm in that pain where I sometimes can't even mouth what to ask the Lord. Lord, I'm trying, but it's not coming out. And what happens to me, I want God's will. But I see my spouse or I see my child or I see somebody in the church and, you know, they, they have a disease, an infirmity. I mean, it could take their life. My prayer is, Lord, heal them. But what is God's will? What is God's will? I don't know how many people I've come across that because of that melody in their life, because of that cancer, because of that leukemia, because of that death in the family, because of, or fill in the blank, and that's what brought me to Christ, they said. That's what brought me to Christ. So sometimes the trials, and so this is when I don't know how to pray. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he makes intercession for me. Uh, let me take it a step further. Turn with me. Go to the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 26 and 27. I'm talking about those prayers. Some of you understand. You're on your knees, and, and you've got your hands, and you, you know, you're clenching, and, and you're saying, Lord, I, I, I need to tell you something. Lord, I, Lord, I need to ask you this. And, and it's just so hurtful, so painful. Years ago when we went to Southern California, uh, it's probably about, ooh, I'm going to say 10 to 12 years ago, my nephew was in a bubble because of his sickness, his disease, his infirmity. He was in children's hospital. At that time, he was, what, 12 years old, 15, something like that. I can't remember. It broke my heart when we walked in there. I mean, he was in a, in, in a bubble. He was shielded. He was in a plastic container. And I don't know if you've ever seen it. you got to put your hands in this giant glove. And that's how I laid hands on him. And he's crying, Uncle, pray for me. And I don't know what else to do. And I thank God that years later, God's healed him. They said he'd never have children. He has two. He's in the army right now. 
He passed all the physicals. God healed him. But at the time, I got my hand in there and I'm praying. My wife's got her hand. We're praying. Lord, what is it that you want here? I see my brother is distraught. I see his wife. She's distraught. This is when Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27, come into the picture. He begins here in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself, listen, he makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Moms, I know, because moms are called to pray many times. When your son, your daughter is hurting, your spouse, your husband, and man, you just grab a hole and you just get on your knees and you pray, and then sometimes you don't know what to say. Lord, but God knows. The Spirit knows. The groaning, the aches, the pain. I've made those type of prayers. Notice that he says here, but the Spirit himself makes intercession. He intercedes for me. He pleads for my cause with groanings which cannot be uttered. He understands them. He understands them, those groans. Look at verse 27. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according, listen to this, mark it down, the will of God. Lord, I know what my will is. I want you to heal my nephew. But Lord, what's your will? What's your will? Every opportunity I get, I bring that back to my nephew's remembrance. God heard your cries. God heard your prayers. God heard our prayers. What are you doing for him? What are you doing to serve him? What are you doing to please him? Because, see, it's not all about us, church, but it's about him. And so beautiful position. Let's go ahead a little bit here. Romans 8, look at verse 34. Who is he who condemns? Is it Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God and who also makes intercession for us? Now we know who condemns. Jesus is the judge. He must judge righteously and he will judge sin. But as our complete high priest, listen, Romans 8.34, as our complete high priest, our complete Messiah, our God incarnate, Jesus prays for us. And I'll tell you, I think we're going to be blown away one day when we get to heaven and we know how much God prayed for us. I mean, I'm going to fall in the same category as you. We don't all pray enough. I don't care who we are. But I thank God that he prays for me. I thank God that he prays for you. I thank God that I can say, Lord, I don't know how to pray in this situation. But because he's my high priest, because he sits at the right hand of the Father, he intercedes for me. And the enemy comes and accuses you before the throne of grace. He turns to the Father and he says, he's one of mine. She's one of mine. Ah, oh, thank you, Lord. I needed to know that. He is our high priest to the uttermost church. 
to the uttermost. Let's go back to our text now. Look at verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting. Here we're going to see the qualification. And it's just a, a, just a small picture here of our high priest, which is Christ. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Jesus is fitting as our high priest. Jesus is right for us. That's the translation. Jesus is holy as our high priest. He is set apart for us. He is consecrated for us. Listen to this, the word holy again, hagios. He is mercy for us. He is purity for us. I love this. All this because I'm not. All this because I'm not. I thank the Lord for that. Notice that it says, Jesus is harmless. Now, the translation is better, this. Jesus is innocent because he knows no sin. He was all man. He was all God. But he knew no sin. Remember, in Matthew chapter 4, before he comes into his public office, he is tempted by Satan. And each time in his temptation, Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He was sinless, church. Jesus was harmless, innocent. He knew no sin. But yet he took our sins upon him. He took them at the cross. Jesus is undefiled. Here's another qualification. Again, no sin. Jesus is purity. And I want you to see this. Jesus is separated from sinners. On your own, study Isaiah chapter 59. What has separated you from your God? Your sin nature. When people say, I know God, I, I'm a Christian. No, if, you don't, if you're not born again of the Holy Spirit, you don't know him. You say you know him, you know of him, but he's not part of you. You're not born again of the Holy Spirit. And so... Jesus is separated from sinners. Jesus places a room between my sins and himself. He takes my sins now, your sins, and he places them into another place. Once I come to saving grace, all of my sins, listen, past, present, and future. And we're going to see a, a scriptural base on that. I want you to turn with me. Leave a marker there. Go to Psalm 103 with me. And we're going to pick it up in verse 11 through verse 14. Psalm 103, verse 11. You know, it's hard to conceive because I know I'm a sinner. You know you're a sinner. And I come to that place at the cross, recognizing that I am a sinner. And I acknowledge, Lord, I'm a sinner. Lord, I need you. I desperately need you. And then I accept Christ. Lord, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin. This is that faith factor again. Abraham believed God by faith. Sarah believed God by faith. It takes faith, church. The enemy is going to rock your cage. But notice now, Psalm 103, look at verse 11. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. The word fear is now I'm sitting in the corner trembling that he's going to hit me with a giant mallet. But the fear of the Lord is the reverence of God. 
You are the awesome God. You are the God that I serve. You are almighty God. Lord, I worship you. I praise you. That's why we had worship before we take on the teaching. Lord, prepare my heart. I want to come and worship you, Lord. I want to come and praise you. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. Oh, I need God's mercy. But look at verse 12. Here's what he does with our sins, church. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us or our sins. You know, you come to saving grace. It's been 10 years, been 20 years, and the enemy will bring back those sins. And it's like, you know what you did in 1982? You know what you did in 1983? You know what you did? And he, he has the years down. Well, if the enemy knows, listen, and he does. God knows. Jesus knows. It's under the blood. It's covered. But he takes my sins. He takes your sins. As far as east is from west. Oh, I love that now. Uh, <laughs> one pastor described it this way. He takes my sins. He takes your sins. As far as east is to west. He says, look at the sunrise, follow it through the day to the sunset, and he takes our sins. Get up in the morning, go over here to uh, the mountains and watch the sun come up, turn around, get in your car, and go to California. You'll be there in 12 hours. Then go to the beach and just park on Pacific Coast Highway, and then watch the sunset. From the time you saw it rise, and then now the time you saw your sins are cast as far as the east is to the west. Oh, I tell you, that's awesome. We've stood there. When we go to California, we get the chance. We love to go see the sunset. We'd love to go, you know, eat some fish there that's not in a can. And you see that sunset. Oh, Lord, Lord. And then get in your car and race back because you're going to get ready for the sunrise. It's beautiful. He takes our sins as far as the east is from the west. He says, so far has he removed our sins from us. Now, verse 13, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. As a father has mercy, that's the translation, for his children. So the Lord, Jehovah God, has mercy for those that reverence him, fear him, come to him. And then notice verse 14. He knows his church, for he knows our frame. He knows our fashion. He knows who I am. He knows who you are. For he knows our frame. He, he remembers that we are dust you see he made us from dust and from dust we're going to return and then one day he's going to give us a new body you know there are those that fear cremation and honestly what does it matter cremation takes 10 hours i guess i don't know how long it is they say they burn several bodies together i'm sorry to gross you out but anyway then i don't know how they separate the ashes but it doesn't matter well, no, I don't want to be cremated. Well, 
in 40 years, you're going to be dust anyway. You know, let's speed it up. <laughs> and that, that's a whole other teaching. Now, for he knows our frame. He knows me. He knows you. Why? He created me. He created you. He remembers that we are but dust. Now, go back up to verse 26. And has become higher than the heavens. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. He's still my high priest. He makes intercession for me. Now, on your own, I want you to mark this down. John chapter 17, the gospel, it is called the high priestly prayer. We're, we're accustomed uh, to the Our Father. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Those were instructions how to pray. But this is the Our Father. It's called the high priestly prayer. Now, Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father. It's a beautiful prayer. The prayer breaks down in three brackets. And in verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. He's getting ready to go to the cross. He knows it. He's getting ready to go to the cross. In John 17, verse 5, here's his prayer. O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus always was high priest from the beginning. The second part of the prayer in John 17, verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples, those that were part of the entourage in the New Testament church in the early beginning there. And then this is where we come in. The last portion of the prayer, the high priestly prayer, verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for all believers. Listen, past, present, and future. Jesus was praying for you, for me, because he knew the time would come that you would come to saving grace. And he's in the heavenly places right now. And again, we read earlier, he sits at the right hand of the Father and he makes intercession. He pleads for me, pleads for you. He prays for me, he prays for you. Let's come to the conclusion now. In verse 27, we're still in Hebrews 7. Who does not need daily? Now watch the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's sins. For this he did once for all when he offered sin for himself. Now the priest, listen to this. The priest would offer a sacrifice every morning and every evening, first for himself and then for the people. Jesus offered the complete sacrifice of himself once and for all. Jesus becomes the complete sacrifice. He becomes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He also became the complete high priest, but he only did this once. Jesus does not die for us every Sunday. Jesus died 2,000 years ago, once and for all. We come into the picture, and we accept that death at the cross. And we come to saving grace once and for all. It's a beautiful picture. Now, to understand that, put your thinking caps. I love this. John the Baptist baptizing at the Jordan. Jesus comes in. John is baptizing uh, for the remission of sins. John had a lot of followers, and when John saw Jesus, what did he say? 
Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The complete sacrifice. Have mercy on me. You see, all of the Old Testament sacrifice, all the Old Testament priesthood was a shadow of what Jesus, the Lamb of God, that takes away the sins of the world, was going to accomplish at Calvary. The conclusion now, verse 28, for the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected. And here's that word again, forever. Forever. Now, the King James uses the last part here, consecrated forever. And it's, it's a good translation, which I have, the new King James, perfected. Jesus is the perfect and the complete sacrifice, listen, forever. I mean, how do you describe forever? It's for eternity. It doesn't stop, church. That's why, how can he stop being my high priest after the millennium? How can he stop being my Messiah after the millennium? No, Jesus is the Son of God, Savior of the world forever. My high priest forever. My complete sacrifice forever. Man, when you come to grips with that, oh, Lord, thank you. Now, verse 28, I love the New Living Translation, and, and this is what it says here. Those who were high priests under the law of Moses were limited by human weaknesses, but after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath, and his son has been made perfect, complete, forever. The Old Testament priests were weak, and this weakness speaks of their spiritual infirmity, their spiritual feebleness, their spiritual, you know, weak minds, moral frailty, disease, infirmity, sickness, weakness, all speaks of their spiritualness. Because they were mere men, and Jesus was and still is the Son of God, Savior of the world, my complete sacrifice. Jesus, the consecrated one. The consecrated one. One commentary said this about verse 28. Opposed to having infirmity perfected, complete by his once for all completed sacrifice and consequence, consecration and exaltation to the right hand of the Father. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Exempt from all human uh, infirmities, sinfulness, whatever, just fill it in. Having no further righteousness to fulfill, to qualify him as our high priest forever. The fall, what took place at the cross, was complete, church. Again, you get that in your mind now. When Jesus gives up the ghost, he says, it is finished. It's done. It's done. You don't need Pastor Bob to get saved. You don't need Calvary Chapel to get saved. You don't need any ministry. You need Christ. Those that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, we come in on Sunday mornings, and we come into the church service. We come into the building that we call the church. But I want you to remember this. This is our meeting place. This is our meeting house. But if you're a Christian, you're born again of the Holy Spirit, Christ dwells within you. Mark these two verses down. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians 6. Verses 19 and 20. Paul says, know you not now 
that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit who tabernacles within you. He paid the full price for you. For the longest time, I had this concept. Some of you probably had the same concept. Well, I'm going to church today. Got to take off my secular hat and, and put on my Christian hat. And I come in, I see the ushers, I see the greeters. Oh, praise God, brother. But how do you act outside the walls? Sometimes we've got the Christian hat, and then we've got the secular hat, and sometimes we turn it around. We don't even know. Don't you know that your body, listen, is the temple of the Holy Spirit who tabernacles within you? <laughs> I tell you what, when you come across with that final concept that he lives and tabernacles in you, there's a whole different perspective. There's a whole different perspective. So tomorrow morning you go to work. The boys are over here or the girls are over there and they're telling their stories. And you join in. Don't forget you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. If what you're hearing, you're saying, you're partaking, so is Christ. So is Christ. Are you going to go to the bar and order two beers? One for me, one for Jesus. Doesn't work that way, does it? Doesn't work that way. Know you not that you are the temple. Listen, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Ah, church, that, that just floors me. That he desires to dwell in me, that he desires to dwell in you. This is that personal relationship that I have, that you have, or that you can have. Jesus is our final priest forever. Let's all stand. We'll end with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, just for your precious word. Your word that Isaiah says will not come back void. Lord, I pray for each individual right now. Lord, you know who they are. Lord, maybe there's somebody here this morning that has never made a commitment to Jesus. They're trying to figure it out their own way. But Lord, they need you. They desperately need you. They need your precious blood to wash them, to cleanse them, to empty them of themselves, to bring them into that relationship with you. With every eye closed, every head bowed, I'm going to give you that opportunity right now. We're not here to embarrass anybody, but right there where you're at, you can receive Christ. I'm not going to ask you to come up, but right there where you're at, if you're not sure, if you're not positive, please come to Saving Grace. If that's you this morning, you'd like to receive Christ, indicate by raising your hand, and I'll say a simple prayer of faith. Anybody here this morning would like to receive Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. Before we close, raise your hand and we'll say a prayer. Anybody, anybody, praise the Lord. Then if we're all Christian, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness, your grace, your love, your mercy, Lord. And Father, I ask that you would just empty us, Lord, of ourselves. Even as we prepare to leave, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Give us a hunger and a thirst for your word. Father, bless your people that have come this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord. 
Give us a heart to discern, to receive from you. Father, bless each and every one here this morning. Lord, we ask that you bless the offerings this morning. As you've given to us, we give back a portion. We are so grateful for your love. We're so grateful for your son, Jesus, that died on the cross to give us life, life eternal. Father, bless your people now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And we all agree by saying amen.